Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Boom. That's it. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener and that's what you do. You listen. All right. So listen. We're deep in this quarantine for five weeks at least. I'm fucking running out of guests. Whatever. That's my problem, not yours. We're going to keep this curious podcast churning. I don't give a fuck. I'll interview my son who's 15 months and can say dada. And also Josh, which I find weird. My son knows my, my parental name and also my given, my first name, which it's just, it's really weird yet cute when a 15 month old says josh josh he can't really say it. he kind of goes josh josh my mom or my mom that was a weird freudian slip my wife <laughs> my wife will say um who's josh and he'll look at me point and go josh i mean it's not like that it's, he's not like oliver in the broadway show oliver where he's like mom i have some old place it's not like josh but it's it's got a little it's got a little you know tilt to it. Josh, it's really cute. Um, my my son and I have become very close over this quarantine, absurdly close. Lot of bonding, lot of bonding. I love it. But you know when this thing is over, I think I'm due for a bit of me time. <laughs> I uh, you know. I definitely, up until this moment, even if I had to leave for like a 24-hour span, I would feel awful. The idea of like, I'm missing the moment. Like, you know, kids, they do change rather quickly, especially at this age. But, you know, I think at this point now, if I had to leave for 24 to 72 hours, I'd say, well, you know, this is good. You know, we need a little, uh, yeah. It'll, uh, you know, the heart will grow fonder, son. So be nice to your mother. <laughs> no, I'm, ki- I'm not, I'm not kidding. I, you know, I'll definitely, I'll, I would look forward to a, a 24 to 48 hour, uh, bit of me time getting to do what I want with a world that was operating succinctly, which I assume will be, you know, heading into, uh, sooner than later. And I think everyone would feel that way. My wife would feel that way. She probably wouldn't need 48 hours. She might need seven, but you know, sure she wouldn't mind a massage and a pedicure. I'm not saying that she needs one. I'm just saying that, you know, listen, these are the nice things that that people do for themselves, you know? A little pampering, a little them time, right? So I think it's interesting. I wonder what businesses will be inundated from the moment the quarantine is lifted, right? Like every dude's gonna get their hair cut. Every girl is going to, I don't get their hair done, manicure, pedicure. I don't know. I don't mean I'm, that's just walking into trouble, right? Did I fuck up? Because I'm generalizing. Because not all women color their color or, you know, style their hair. And not all women wear nail polish. So I don't really, this is my, I'm, I'm a bad person because I said that. Come on. 
Come on. Right? Don't we have bigger fish to fry here than me, than Josh Peck? You know, you're going to come after me. Wow, I'm creating an, and I'm becoming so utterly defensive. And yet no one has, you know, this is a complete conversation that goes on in my head. Wow, I'm really getting vulnerable with you guys. Because that's, that's exactly what I would think after I said something like that. I'd be like, really? This is what brings me down, God? And then, you know, a fairly innocuous comment that 10 years ago would, you know, not offend anyone. And now it's, you know, this is what does it. This is what brings me down and leads me to be, you know, become a, a drug addict who, you know, has his final meal at a, at a, you know, a low level white castle in a bus terminal. Really? This is what does it. That comment. <laughs> you know. The other day I got angry. Last week I got angry at a grocery store person. Now granted, and I'm going to qualify because you got to. In this world, you got to. I don't act on this frustration, but I feel it. I realize that people like grocery store employees are heroes. Not even in a quarantine. Day to day. They got to deal with assholes like me. I think these people deserve the world. You know what I'm saying? So, of course, I don't act on it, but I have thoughts. Am I not allowed my thoughts? Am I not allowed those? So the other day, I ordered some food for pickup using uh, the Postmates app. Great, wonderful app. Very happy to order some food that I was actually picking up for a friend who is currently quarantined and cannot leave the house. I was going to leave it on his mailbox because... Again, listen, I'm not calling myself a hero. You you are all free to, if you so choose. So I order this food from a place near my house, place I've never been. Place looks good. You know, the Yelp reviews through the roof, you know, not bad at all. But, I, you know, I find it weird that this place is within like less than a mile of my house. I've never seen it. And the reviews are really good. So I make the order. They tell me. About 15 minutes. About 15 minutes later, I get a, a nice text from Postmates. Hey, your order's ready. Come on in, fella. Come uh, pick up your nourishment. I get, you know, stuck. Another 15 minutes goes by. So I've now added a nice pad in between when I got that text and when I came to pick up the food. I mean, this food had, had to have been sitting there for 15, 20, maybe 25 minutes at least. So I go in. And this is one of these uh, these ghost kitchens. It's a remote kitchen. It's this new invention. It's fucking brilliant, to be quite honest. I'm pissed that I didn't think of it. But basically, the idea is, is like there are restaurants that do a fair amount of takeout and delivery that perhaps can't house it within their own sort of kitchen, that the infrastructure in place for that would require them to have more space, more people working there. It's not really a reality. And... There are certain restaurants or certain uh, takeout joints that don't really want to have, what's the word? Hang up a shingle. Is that the word? Put up a shingle? They don't want to have a brick and mortar store. They don't want to invest in that. We all know that that's like a pretty, you know, uh, that, that any sort of storefront business in general is taking a big risk because people sit at home mostly. So instead, it's like... Um, it's like a commercial kitchen for 40 different places. So I don't know what it looks like in there. I imagine it's like walking into an Ikea and there are just like 15 
commercial kitchens fired up, ready to go, housing every different restaurant. And then there's one main area where people go in to pick up their food. So this way, you don't have to have a storefront. You don't have to invest in all that bullshit. You just got your kitchen. You get your delivery. You get your pickups. You're good. You gotta. You have a thriving business. And I support this. I think it's fucking brilliant. But it's new. It's new technology that I am not privy to. So um, excuse me when I go to this place, right? Now I go to this place. It looks like a fucking cafe in, you know, some quaint European town, okay? You got, you know, four or five people on bikes, two, three people on mopeds. You got a lot of foot traffic. I mean, it looked provincial. Is that the right? I don't think provincial is the right word. But it looked utterly um, Eura- Euro- European, Eurasian. That's Europe and Asia. It looked, it looked European. It just looked utterly like it looked like you were walking up to a movie with like this cast of characters 25 30 people now i assume these are all people that who you know many of whom who work at a grub hub at a postmate at a doordash right so these people are professional uh you know food delivery folk so they all knew the process i unfortunately did not again this is a technology that was created like 2 years ago these kitchens. This did not exist. So I go. And I go up into the counter and I say, hi, I'm here to pick up my food. They go, did you get a text? I said, of course, a text from Postmates. No problem. Allow me to show you. They go, no, from us. I say, from you? I don't even know you. We're not friends. We've never met. Why would I get a text? He goes, get out. I go, what? He's like, social distancing, too many people are in here. Go wait outside. I said, hold the phone. Just, you need to, hey, what is happening? What? I don't understand. I don't, you didn't follow the rules. Get outside. So I go outside. Listen, I'm not going to fight. Social distancing is important. Six feet, six feet. But could he have not just more nicely made me understand that I had to like sign up for two newsletters and give a pint of blood to pick up this food. They go, listen, there's a sign on the wall. You're going to have to take a picture of a QR code, sign up on our interface, agree to text messages and news alerts, which I think is just, I feel like if I, if I need to agree to that, to pick up my food, I'm never coming here again. Just as a small, I just want to, If I need to get spam mail from you, I don't want to come here. But this guy kicking me out, not nice. Now, of course, me, I did not lash out because, listen, we're in a crisis. I can understand this, but perhaps he could have said it in a more gentle, thoughtful, niceful way that perhaps wouldn't have utterly hurt my feelings. (laughs) Oh, man, was I like, and it was funny because I did leave immediately and I totally respected the whole social distancing of it. That's fine. Basically, once you like give them your social security number and all of your, you know, banking information, they then give you a separate text from their kitchen that says, Hey, the food's ready. Come to the window. And they like pull it from the back, whatever. But it was interesting because the guy was sort of berating me and I was like, Hey man, you don't have to be rude. Just explain to me what's going on. And he like, we had 
kind of a moment of eye contact of him looking at me like, I'm going to write the story. And this guy might have thought, hey, Josh of Drake and Josh, fuck yourself. No special treatment, you know, and that's fine. But what I think he said, what our eyes said was, I'm sorry, man. This is a fucking weird time. And we're, we're completely inundated with people because this is a, just an insane time and they all want to pick up food and no one's following the rules and we're trying to be safe here and this is a fucking pandemic. And dude, like, I, I didn't mean to lash out at you like that. It's just like, can you just follow the rules and make my life easier and not be a fucking idiot? Because it's very simple. Just follow this paper that's on the window. And of course, my eyes said, I know I'm an idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. And I just... Can you be nicer when explaining to me exactly why I'm an idiot? Would you mind? Just because I'm fragile and I'm sent. I never met my dad. <laughs> On today's show, Nick Swartzen, Nikki Swartzen. Look, Nick Swartzen's one of the best comedians, actors, writers, I think, alive from movies like Grandma's Boy, Bucky Larson, pretty much every Adam Sandler movie ever made, and much, much more. Nick is just one of the most talented, funny people I know, and the guy is a mensch. He's a sweetheart. He's good as gold, and I felt so lucky to have him on the pod, and this is easily one of my faves, so I can't wait to share it with you. Enjoy Nick Swartzen. Dude. Dude. What's up? Are you live now? Yeah, we're dumb live. All right. I figured just jump right in. Go for it, man. Um, so we're at your house. Yes, we're at my little condo here. I didn't want a house because I, I just, I can barely maintain anything. So I just feel like, I don't know, I, I didn't want a house because I would just be afraid of any noise. And if I had to fix anything, I don't know how to do anything. I can't fix anything. I don't, I'm really worthless. I am too. I'd be the worst person on like a desolate island i i have no skills and i'm i have a lot of anxiety yeah same here yeah if i was stuck on an island i would be the only person trying to call an uber <laughs> and everyone's like this is not helping i'm like all right lift <laughs> yeah listen we're all here uber pool yeah we can all get in one car i suppose i can find a jump scooter somewhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um but we are also at your house because you decided not to come to the podcast studio I would have done it, but I for those listeners, I'm afraid of elevators. It's my number one fear. Tell me about and it. And Josh, Josh's studio was on the 58th floor. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was on the 14th floor, and uh, I just, I, I just can't. 14's a lot. And what? How long the elevator fear been going? Your whole life? It's been going my whole life. It would go in and out of <clears throat> of waves of it, and then I just, I couldn't do it. In certain places, it's tricky because. Las Vegas, especially, and New York are tricky because, the, you know, the buildings are so high and you have to, have to have security access to to get certain, uh, just even get in the stairwell, especially Vegas. So it's been brutal. But uh, I remember one time I was filming a movie, Grown Ups 2, in Boston, and we were staying at the Ritz-Carlton. And I was like, I'll stay at another hotel. And Sandler was like... No, man, we all got to be together. It's just better for all together. And I'm like, all right. So they didn't have stair access. No. How, so, how is that allowed? Isn't that a fire It's hazard? really weird. Trust me, I'm very fluent in this. Yes, tell me. And really high-end places, especially with high security, they just don't have casual stair access. So you need a card. You need, there's so many hoops to jump through. Right. 
And uh, so I was in the elevator with my buddy Jay, and we were going down the elevator, and it stopped. And I immediately lost my breath. That's my biggest fear is it stopping. So I lost my breath, and my buddy Jay was like, dude, chill out. And I immediately grabbed the doors and started to rip them open. <laughs> and it was superhuman. I stand by that when you're in that state of panic, you always hear that when people can like throw cars off people if they're trapped or something. I ripped the doors open and started screaming at my friend Jay. And I'm like, jump, jump. And he's like, what? No, chill out. And I'm like, jump. And I had ripped them open enough. And it was in between floors. It's so dangerous. I don't recommend doing that. You're really not supposed to do that. And he was like, oh, my God. And so he jumped and dove into the lobby. And then I jumped out after him. And he was like, oh, my God, dude. And I was just shaking, shaking. And uh, what was the landing like, though? Did you roll out of it? Was it? I splattered. <laughs> and he did like a pretty deft uh, a tumble? ninja roll. Yeah. Solid. Yeah. He took out he took out a couple people. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was, you know, and then the elevator was shut down. It was a mess. Did and- you make the elevator worse? In I don't know. I might open right. Yeah, I, I'm not proud of. I mean, I am because I got out. But, but that that my point is that's the degree of how freaked out I am about elevators. Did it come out of nowhere or just your whole life? It just it, when I was a kid, I was really claustrophobic, mm. and I had an older brother, and he would lock me in things and tackle me and smother me and stuff, and like any brother, good brothers. <laughs> sure. And uh, yeah, it kind of stemmed from that. And then I just, I just had a horrible fear. And then they would keep snowballing from stories out here. And the worst one, I don't know if you heard about this. This guy was on Oprah, and he was trapped in an elevator for three days. Jesus. He was in New York City. Anybody listening can YouTube it. And they have a camera inside the elevator, and he was there for three days. He left work on a Friday, and he had forgotten his phone in his office. So he took the elevator back up, and it got stuck. And everybody had left for the weekend. And he was there, and there was a camera on him, and they do a time lapse. And they interviewed him. He had his bag with him, and he had a Gatorade and like a Snickers, something like that. So he was able to kind of sustain. Yeah. But he didn't have his phone because he had left his phone. And he was like, I had no idea what time it was, what day it was. He just completely lost it, you know? And I mean, he's obviously fine now, but I mean, I can't even (laughs) fathom that. Because that's what's freaky to me is you don't really know how long you're in there for. I mean, for the most part, you'll be fine, but... You have to assume one day they'll need that elevator again. Yeah. Have you you tried going into an elevator with a Gatorade and a Snickers? Maybe that will nullify your fears. Um, no, I have not, Josh, but I, I'll try that. Try I'll just ki- have a convenience store with me. <laughs> try king size Snickers. <laughs> yeah. What if, what if you had, okay, let's, what if you got into an elevator with like a satellite phone, an EpiPen, and like a 12 pack of rolls? So worst case scenario, you know, you're going to be able to talk to someone. Right. And you'll have some sustenance for like 12 rolls, like nice Kaiser rolls. That's like 3,000 <laughs> calories. So I'm just planning on a really long time in there. So yeah. just brace yourself for... And Nintendo Switch. I mean, that that's better. Right? That would be funny if I just, every time I rode an elevator, I had like a Thanksgiving dinner with me just to <laughs> calm me down. <laughs> just to, People are like, what are you doing? I'm like, just in case we stop and we're stuck for a month in over escape. the holidays, we're uh. ready. It's, yeah, I've done every scenario. I mean, I used to have a Xanax in my wallet just in case. That helped, definitely. Because it stemmed into a fear of flying, too, where I would stop planes. I've stopped planes on tarmacs. 
where I would, I would totally panic. And I'm like, no, I got a taxi back. And they were like, are you joking? And I'm like, no, I, I only did it a handful of times, but it would, it would just, it was awful. Were you in first class when you asked to be brought back to the terminal? Because I think if you're in economy, they don't turn the plane around. They they tell you to shut the fuck they up. They just sucker punch you? <laughs> yeah. Or somebody chokes you out? No, I was... Uh, the one time I, I really did it was I was on a commuter flight, uh, which is a really small plane. Yeah, and I was scary. Going, yeah, I was going to a gig from Minnesota to Michigan. So it was just popping over. And uh, I was sitting in a window seat, and I was doing okay. And the seat next to me was empty, so I'm like, all right, I'm good. And then it was a scene out of a movie, and the plane was full except for the seat next to me. And they're like, oh, we got one more. And this large, older man, probably 60, came down the aisle, and I was like, oh, no. Uh, and he sat next to me, and I just kind of moved into the window. And uh, I just started hyperventilating. And I, he was a really nice guy. I mean, we were talking, and I tried to talk through it. But it just physically, it was just... I couldn't, I, I just couldn't breathe and I had to stop. Yeah. Oh, it's people it, were mad, dude. <laughs> and it was just, and then my favorite was my friend was on the flight with me who was opening for me at the show. And he's like, Do you want me to go? Should I go with you? And I'm like, Well, yeah. What, what, <laughs> yeah. Do, you, what do you think? You're just going to go to the show? I, I mean, dude, come on. I don't have uh, my only thing even close to that is when my wife and I were gifted tickets back from Mexico because I'd gotten this nice trip at the end of this job that I did. And they said, well, unfortunately, we only have one first class ticket and one economy ticket. And when you're at the beginning of a relationship, Sophie's Choice style, it's like, fuck, what, what do right. I do? Right. Now, the chivalrous thing as a man, you give the lady first class. Yeah. But I'm a sober man, and my wife is not. My wife chose to, you know, take some Xanax on the plane. Right. So I said, because you're going to now take a medicinal supplement to make you more comfortable, right? I of course deserve the first class seat. Yeah. It's I have not heard the end of it, Nick, for six years. Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> so you took first class? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean she has a Xanax. What, why did she she was not happy about that she just brings it up in the best at the best times right and but i i remind her that she was you know doped up on benzos yeah that's a logical trade i mean even i could do that xanax is a game changer for a situation like that mm. because just having xanax on me i wouldn't even need to take it just knowing i had it it is it is really calming it's such a devious drug it's very devious and yes. i say this that if in you know like anything pharmaceutically it, it has a medical purpose for it yes so it's not a casual social drug i mean i obviously tons of people all my friends i've done it but if if it's in that moment moments like that it's it's perfect you know yeah it's an escape it's, yeah well it just it just calms your fear if you have a really paralyzing fear which i did it was you know it was great um so we're here recording this podcast, which I'm so grateful for because you're one of my favorite people. Thanks, buddy. Likewise. And I'm almost at 110 podcasts. And, oh, wow. And so this had to be in there. And we had a couple a couple planned it, weren't able to see it through. And then, and call me crazy, I think the turning point was <laughs> I FaceTimed you. With John Stamos. Right. And I think it solidified my level of celebrity to you. 
that I hang out with John Stamos and you said, I got to give this kid a try. I got to well, do his podcast. He's b- a bigger deal than I thought. First of all, that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I knew you were friends with Stamos. If I if I had to deal with everybody that was friends with Stamos, true, I would be everywhere. No, sometimes it just doesn't match up. But I, of course, I would I would have done it regardless. I, uh, you're awesome, and we went through a time period called the N- NBA Entertainment League which was uh, a ragtag group of actors, directors, and writers that played. It was a sub thing of the NBA, and we would do these charity games. And I remember, it's still one of my favorite parts of my life, which uh, it, it was just so bizarre. It was just all of us together traveling. We would perform or do, uh, not shows, but we would do games at arenas. Kansas City. NBA arenas. Kansas City, Dallas. Phoenix. Phoenix. And, you know, these crowds would come out and, you know, some people were really good and some people were not. But <laughs> I was it, one of the knots. I was one of the knots also. No, you were good. I was impressed with your level of fearlessness and fervor because you're not a tall guy. And there were some athletically adept people there. And you were like, no, fuck out of here. I'm going to throw some elbows and let you know I mean business. I mean, I can't, you kind of had to because it was just survival. I mean, I, I am decent at basketball. But uh, I would definitely not put... I was lower tier. <laughs> I remember it was you, me, and uh, who else was kind of... Uh, like Brody Jenner. Brody yes. was decent. But it was uh, it was just funny because... I mean, obviously doing stand-up, I'm used to just being thrown out in front of a crowd and fight or flight, you know? But, you know, when guys would take it really seriously, I I would definitely give the ball out. I wasn't a fan of getting the rock at a uh, really crucial time at any <laughs> point of the game. And then there was a partying. And I remember one time, and I, you were there, it was Phoenix. And uh, they had a party the night before. And I, I wasn't going to drink, so I was like, I want to be focused for the game. And of course, of course. easily swayed. <laughs> and one of the guys uh, from the NBA, I won't say his name. Shane. Who? <laughs> no, no, no. From the actual NBA. Oh, like a player. Was like a player. So a lot of the players would come or they would coach or they would hang out. And he was like, Hey, are you doing you want to do a shot? I'm like, No, I don't drink before the games. And he goes, What? We all drink for the game the night before. And I'm like, What? Really? And he was like, Oh yeah. So I started doing tequila shots. Next thing I'm completely wasted. Wake up the next day, vomiting, so hungover. We go to the game. I'm green, disgusting, so hungover. And uh I didn't want to play at all. And they kept going like, you're in. I'm like, nope. And I just kept, and Brody was the same way. And we were so badly hung over. And we didn't, I think we played like one minute. I would check in and then dribble the ball, almost diarrhea, and then immediately <laughs> check out. And then I saw the player and I'm like, dude. And he goes, why didn't you play? And I'm like, I'm so hung over. I'm like, why? You guys really drank the night before? And he goes, and he goes, no, I was joking. He's like, we don't drink like that the night before. Because he wasn't playing. Oh, Baron Davis is such a joker. <laughs> I wish. I know Baron. And uh, yeah, so I was like, oh, dude, that wasn't cool. But uh, that's the, it, my biggest fear was realized playing in the NBA E-League because we had, you know, we had some real ballers and Mr. Donald Faison. Yeah, Donald <laughs> would be good. Bill Bellamy. Yeah. And the thing with Don, I had such a, a massive resentment against Donald Faison for years because of the NBA E-League. Right. Because outside of the game, the yeah. man is a sweetheart. He's yeah, he's a the jet. best. Love Donald. But within the confines of the game, 
he, I, I wanted to say, Donald, you're on Scrubs. And I'm Josh from Drake and Josh. Right. And this means 0.0. <laughs> this is less than an intramural basketball game at your local YMCA. And you give a fuck? Yeah. And he was pissed. Yeah, people got really serious. And people would go outside of the league and they would hire coaches and they would have practices. Yeah. So, I mean, people took it really, really seriously. And I just, I just couldn't. I mean, I would definitely try my best. I wasn't, like, phoning it in. But it was... uh I remember one time, this was one of my favorite things in my life, and I was doing one of the games, and um, Terrell Owens played in the league, uh, football player, star wide receiver, and we were were playing the game, and I had zero points, and it was towards the end of the game, and uh, there was a fast break. He stole the ball, and I sprint down the court with him, and we're wide open, and I have zero points, (laughs) and the crowd knew it, and they were kind of cheering. And you could tell Terrell really wanted to dunk it or do something really sweet. But he knew once again, (laughs) I had zero (laughs) points. And I was a crowd favorite because I was a comedian. So he dishes the ball to me, wide open layup, and just biff. (laughs) And the whole crowd was like, oh. It was just a whole stadium of people just pure disappointment. And Terrell Owens just looking at me. And I was like, all right, thanks for the dish. Do I get a point for that? Ugh. Is there a point for just accepting the pass? That hurts. Yeah, it was it was really brutal. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I remember uh, during the league, while it was going on, my manager who got me in the league became the team captain of my team that would play every Sunday. Okay. And I slowly felt him becoming less interested in me as a client when he saw how much I sucked oh, wow. in basketball. And I was like, I, for my career, I got to end this. <laughs> so That's I really going. funny. But it's just so, I don't know about you, but you seem rather athletic. Like for me, I'm such a pure artist. Like I'm good at the razzle dazzle. Right. I'm I'm just I'm not physical in any way. I was fat growing up. I didn't do a push up till I was 19. I don't got it. And so 
to fail at that level in front of those people in what seemingly should be like everyone has a baseline of athleticism. Right. And I don't was I would it would take me 18 hours to recover after those Sunday games. Physically or mentally? Mental. Like right. I, I'd call my mom. She'd come to the games and then she'd have to talk me out of it at like the in and out truck outside. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I, I I literally felt poorly about myself for a good day and a half after. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing that's also good and bad about it is it does push you. But I mean, I you know, I don't play basketball regularly. I mean, I, I have on and off, but it's tricky when you don't have a really adept skill set at something like these guys have played nonstop yeah. their whole lives, you know? So it is tricky in that situation. Um, you know, it's not like softball where people are just drunk and, you know, whatever. Basketball, it's definitely you have to have and I, I don't I didn't really have it. I couldn't run point. I couldn't I could shoot decent, but I mean I definitely didn't have a full skill set. It was it's also one of the dumbest games to get good at because the lifespan of it is not long. Right. And it's so awful on your body. Like every guy I know that plays basketball after 35 somewhat competitively, I go, Do you hate your ACLs? Like, yeah. let me know when you blow out your knee, because I bet you it's within the next six months. Yeah. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I'm like, go play tennis. Have some respect for yourself. Right. Like, don't be screaming at people at the Y. It's ridiculous. Yeah, juggle or something. It's such know. a waste. Yeah. Yeah, some people do see it as kind of a therapy session, because you can tell people are working through some shit. Because that's one thing where I stopped playing pickup games, is there's always fighting there was always, you know, just trying to prove themselves. And it feels like, you know, these, these, the players that we were playing with and which is fine, but I mean, regular pickup games were way more intense, man, where it was really like, there were fights and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it just got to be too much. Yeah. I, it, it just always, it, it amazes me at the level of like, I'm so lucky because I don't have that ego. And like my, my, my father-in-law was a quarterback in the NFL. Oh, wow. And he played for the Jets for like 10 years. And it's incredible for me to see the difference between real athletes, like real guys who had it, and their lack of ego when doing anything athletic after that. Because like they made it to the big show. Yeah. They have nothing to prove. Or like the guy who like played Division three ball at his fucking state college and now is at the local park on a Saturday playing flag football and wants you to understand his greatness. Yeah, completely. But I also feel bad. I mean, you know, when you see athletes that are so good, I mean, growing up in that world has just got to be so brutal. Yeah. Because the talent pool, I mean, I remember I would meet minor league baseball players that were really good and they couldn't get to that next level, but they were, they were amazing, phenomenal athletes. And, you know, it, to, to make it to that level, to that next level is, you know, one in a billion to, to do that, to be a successful pro athlete. And, you know, you always carry that because, you, you know, a lot of these guys were studs when they were, you know, little kids. Yeah. Especially Olympic athletes that were, you know, they started figure skating when they were like two and you know that's all that's all they know is that competitive spirit. So I always, I always feel a little bit bad for guys like that and women and retired athletes where you know you lose that part of your life. You lose a huge part of 
you know, your soul of, you know, that's what you do. That's what you love. And to physically have that taken away when you get injured and stuff like that, I just, it's got to be so brutal. And people like slam on athletes that retire and then they come back. It's like, dude, that's their life. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's their life. You can't, you can't find something, something that is tantamount to that, you know? Oh, a hundred percent. And, and then on the other hand, when you see someone like Andrew Luck retire early, you're like, yeah, I get that too. Cause it's totally. like life was on the line every play. Yeah. And did you watch the Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury fight this weekend? No, I just saw the highlights. It was great. And, but it should have stopped at round four. That's what I heard. Cause Tyson Fury ruptured Deontay's eardrum and it was over. He had no legs. But with boxing, and it made me sick, and I'm a, I'm a huge boxing MMA fan, it's like every round that goes on knowing this guy doesn't have a shot means that that's brain damage that will come into effect completely 20 years from now. Yeah. I mean, the athletes that retire early, I, you know, I totally get it, especially a game like football. I mean, those guys, to take that impact, I, I just, you know, day after day, game after game is just brutal completely brutal but yeah it's you know but you do what you love you know you play a lot of ball with sandler yeah i was gonna mention that sandler is he's obsessed he's right? obsessed with it so he plays nonstop, and he's he's not a workout guy he doesn't like going to the gym and like working out so basketball is a perfect thing for him and a lot of people too it's just you know you break a sweat you get running you, you know you get your heart rate and all that stuff. So, but he's really, really good. And Is he? he? Yeah, he's re- deceivingly good. You can YouTube videos of him playing. But he, you know, it's dangerous too, <laughs> because when you're filming, you're really not supposed to put yourself in any kind of physical thing in case, you know, if you blow your knee out before filming a movie, especially a huge movie with Adam Sandler, you know, you're in jeopardy of delaying production, costing a lot of money. But he would play all throughout filming, nonstop. And so it was hard to defend him because you don't want to be that guy. Right. But we were shooting a movie one time, and uh, I elbowed him really hard in the head on accident. And he had this knot on his head. And I was like, oh, my God. And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry, dude. And he was like, it's okay. I'll be fine. <laughs> no. He, uh, he was like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Because he knew he put himself in that position. You know, it's like. Right, you, you're not you're not getting to the hoop uncontested on fucking Nick <laughs> yeah. Swartzen's watch. Not on my watch, Sandman. You're like the <laughs> you're like the Secret Service guys that would play basketball with Obama. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I can't can't put an elbow into the press. Yeah, no, he has a hundred points on layups. <laughs> right, but yeah, one time we were I was shooting the movie Click, and this is when I this was my first movie with Sandler where I was on camera with him, and he was like, hey man, let's play hoop, and I was like, what? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, my scene's next. And he goes, no, we got like an hour. Come on, man. I'm like, okay. So we played and he passed me the ball and I caught it right on the tip of my pinky. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And it hurt so bad. And he's like, are you all right? And I'm like, ah, yeah, I just jammed my finger. And he goes, okay, just can you still play? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't want to let him down. So I played. I took another pass on the tip of the same pinky and it was excruciating. And I was like, I'm done. And uh, I, we shot the scene, and it's a scene in Bed Bath and Beyond. And I have to fold towels. And my, <laughs> turns out my finger was broken. I'd shattered my pinky. No. Yeah, and I just tucked uh, it out through the scene. Because, was he uh, rifling passes to you? Like, yeah, it was just a, it was a hard pass. But anybody who plays ball knows if you catch it like that, you know, 
it was just a fluke thing. But I did it twice. And my pinky was all crooked for like five years. You think it was the first one or the second pass that shattered it? I, I don't think the second one helped. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it have. adjusted it. <laughs> no, not at I all. I think it was a back-to-back. Um, yeah, it's so... It, uh, wait, uh, I have many questions. First, are you guys playing basketball with makeup on? Yes, heavy, heavy, heavy makeup. Really? Like, truly? No, no, no. Well, if it's in between scenes... If it's in between scenes, no. So that was... Um, I mean, probably there was some, but for the most part, the makeup people were just were mad because you have to, I mean, you know, I was all flushed and you have to, you know, they have to do some more work, a little bit extra work. It's just so bad. But yeah, no, you can't play in like your wardrobe or Clogs something. Clogs and pores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing where, you know, where Adam's headquarters is on the Sony lot. Yeah. Happy Madison. Watching him like I, I was shooting a really bad 3D dance movie there. You haven't seen it. And uh, he would just, every other day, I'd see him walking in, like, the most beautiful, loud, like, he looked like an Israeli who had just discovered basketball. <laughs> so he'd be, like, in knee-high socks. Right. And, like, just great gear and, like, walking to the basketball court. And I'm like, good for him. Like, I'm sure it's very therapeutic for him. Yeah, it really was. And he, they they had it, they made a court for him. They called it uh, Happy Madison Square Garden. And, uh, yeah, they had a thing in the middle of the court and everything, but. Yeah, it, it was really therapeutic, and and it is. You know what I mean? I, I still shoot around and stuff like that, but I, I just can't run games like I used to. I mean, I'm 43 now, which is so insane. And it is like the older you get, the more you you just you're like, I'm good. Do people constantly have a hard time believing you're 43? Yeah, I bet. Yeah, when I'm on stage, I'm like, yeah, I'm 43, and you can tell the audience like, what? They think I'm a joking. You know what I mean? But. Because yeah, you look young, but your sensibility feels even younger. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I mean, I started doing comedy and acting when I was 16 and then really did it right after high school. Yeah. So when you're a comedian your whole life, you're just, it's almost like a state of arrested development where I'm just, I've always, I still like, I'm just kind of immature and, you know, the silly stuff just still makes me laugh. I never was forced to be an adult, you know? That's why I don't know how to do anything. I mean, I've done this 25 years and I, I'm still confused by bills. And like, oh, same here. I, I, you know, so it's, I, it's really fun. You know, I still just have a very silly mentality and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but it does keep you younger. I mean, for people out there listening, I mean, just to laugh and, and just enjoy your life and your friends and people that surround you that bring you joy. And it, it really does. I mean, you, and when you talk to really old people too, like 44. Uh, <laughs> no, but when, like interviews with like Betty White and stuff like that, they're in, the, in their 90s. And they, they all say the same thing of just laughter really is cathartic, you know? Do you find that you're the minority or the majority when it comes to comedians? Because like, I think about D'Elia, who I've had on the pod, Bobby Lee, people like that. They all, none of them seem like the grownups that I grew up with. Right. They all seem incredibly young. Like, I, they didn't ever have to wake up for a nine to five. Yeah. I mean, we're all in the same boat. I know both those guys really well. I mean, I know all the, every, the comedy world is very insular and we all know each other. It's just, it's really fun. And yeah, I mean, that's our life, you know, especially the guys that, you know, didn't get married and didn't have kids. And, you know, you can just kind of live this Peter Pan, you know, fun lifestyle where you don't have an overhead. You can sleep in, you can, you know, write jokes about farting. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Even at like 43, I'm getting ready to do my 
it'll be my sixth special. And it's like, I have a new diarrhea joke. I have like a new farting joke. And, you know, some people I'll read online and people be like, God, it's Nick Swarson. I saw his last special. He's like, st- like, has another diarrhea joke. I'm like, yeah, that's how I roll. Don't watch it if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm going to talk about things that make me laugh. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, it it is really fun. It's just fun to to have a, a you know a life like that. You, I was listening to you on the Andrew Santino podcast. Yeah, and you were using the phrase "trial by fire." And at one point, you were like, it, you weren't exactly sure of the phrase, and you were like, you know, "trial by fire," "trial by challenge," "trial by diarrhea." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and it occurred to me after knowing you for like a decade that like diarrhea and a few other things are like in your arsenal. Like you, you like to go to those. Well, it started as one joke, and uh, it was I did it on Conan, and I did it on one of my specials early on, and it was uh, my cat. I took my cat to the vet. My cat had diarrhea, and the vet's like, "Well, what have you been feeding him?" And I'm like, "Diarrhea," <laughs> and it was so dumb, and it would either work or it wouldn't, and it was, it just made me laugh because it's just so absurd, you know. And uh, I did a a gig at an Ivy League college. I remember this kid in the front row went, oh, it's so stupid. And I turned to him and I go, yeah, I know it's stupid. That's the whole point. Like you can laugh at stupid shit. Yeah. And then it turned into a next special, another joke. And now it's just a running thing where it's like, it's just a joke on a joke where it's like, now I have a new diarrhea joke. So it's just, it's, it's just funny to me that now it's just ironic that, you know, I'm just jumping into like, I know that it's ridiculous. And that's the thing when people watch comedies and they're like, oh, God, that guy's stuff, you know, it's so stupid. It's really funny. And I'm like, why don't you just say it's funny? That's exactly So many right. movies I've done, people are like, yeah, I laughed. I mean, it's so dumb, but I mean, I laughed. And it's like, okay, well, no one's about, I mean, no one's above, you know, just silly shit. Just laugh. If you don't want to laugh, then don't. You know, it's all subjective. But, you know, you don't have to act like everyone's just above, you know, certain kinds of comedy. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, a fart joke. It's like, yeah, it's all right if you don't think farts are funny, but they they are funny. They are funny, a hundred percent. And it's I, not the only thing I talk about. I just pepper it in sometimes. I why do people feel the need to qualify in that way? Like I remember, and this is another boxing reference, but when do you remember when Andy Ruiz beat Anthony Joshua like six months ago? Did yes. you hear about that? Yeah. And so Anthony Joshua, undefeated, six six, African American dude, like looks like he's cut out of stone. Yeah. And Andy Ruiz is kind of like a more portly underdog type. Yes. And every tweet after Andy Ruiz won was, Can you believe this fat fuck? Or like the chubster to the champion. And it was all like some reference to his weight and also good for him. Congrats champ. And I was like, fuck, can't you, can't you just let be happy for him? Yeah. Like, can't it just win and you don't have to qualify that he's also overweight? Yeah. No, it, it, it is that kind of thing where people always want to find an angle or just, you know, just take a shot or be like, Oh, okay, whatever that, that type of thing. And I've seen it so much with comedy, which is, not even like win or lose. It's so subjective. And critics would just attack Sandler and they would attack me and they would just go off. And it was, I'm like, dude, laugh or don't laugh. You don't have to like what we do, but to just find a loophole, like, oh yeah, he's just doing this. Oh, okay. Well, that's stupid. Well, this is 
horribly made. Well, this, yeah, well, th- this part is just, it doesn't even make sense. And it's like, oh my God, dude. Yeah. Like either like it or don't like it. But with, with somebody who win or lost, like the guy won, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you don't have to take him down a peg. Why can't you just go? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, he won, you know, good on him or just don't say anything. You don't have to always chime in. It's like, good God. It's gotta be. Sandler, and I can't think of any other example except for Eddie Murphy to a certain point, and then Eddie Murphy could no longer sustain this. And Sandler is kind of undefeated in this respect of that he doesn't need critics, right? Like his movies can crush and be panned. And it's like, while I'm sure he doesn't appreciate it as a performer, it's also like I would imagine a lot of the hard time he gets is because he really doesn't need anyone. Well, no, and that's what the thing that really drove it was, um, you know, critics would take him down so much and it never mattered because his box office was great because, you know, people loved Adam and they loved his movies and they want to laugh and they want to have a good time. And you go to Sandler movie and you're like, oh, yeah, and you're going to enjoy it. If you, if you don't like him, you don't like it. But it, if you like him, you know, you, you know, that is what it is. Yeah. But, you know, the critics always tried to take him down and it never worked. And then it just made him more angry. And, you know, when he would depart and do things with other directors and stuff like that, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, that that one's good. That's my favorite <laughs> right. movie. And it's like, well, he was still great in everything else just because you didn't like it. He's just as good as in Zohan as he was in Spanglish, you know? So it's, it's just funny how they pull that. And I remember when I first started getting reviews and I would read them and they would infuriate me. And yeah. I remember I, when, I, when Grandma's Boy came out, and the critics, it got like 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. They were like, this movie is terrible. Uh, it's just a favor movie to Adam's friends. And they would just rip it, dude. And I got so mad. And Adam pulled me aside and he was like, dude, you can't, you can't get that in your head. You know what I mean? You've got to just let the movie stand on its own and let the fans love it and let people who like it like it, you know? And you, you just can't let that get in your in your head. And it just, it sucks. And for those people out there listening, it's like, for me, everything I do, I just wanted to always make people laugh. I just wanted to, That's well, that was how I started comedy. That's why I started comedy. You know, I go on stage and I'm fun, I'm silly, and I just talk about what I want to talk about. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. But that was my goal. And so it's hard when stuff gets criticized and you just can't read it because it's like people that, I mean, my movie, Bucky Larson, uh, got 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Does it still to this day? Yeah, zero. No. You know I did Walla for that movie. Did you really? <laughs> I did. I oh, got, that's amazing. I got paid to do background voiceovers for <laughs> that movie. I did not know that. So thank you for the 300. Of course. Yeah. Of course, dude. I needed it. Yeah. Bad. That's awesome. But yeah, so stuff like that. And again, you can dislike something, but... I mean, the reviews are so scathing, and I've rewatched it. And I'm like, God, I this movie's got a great cast: Christina Ricci, Stephen Dorff, Don Johnson, Kevin Nealon, all these people that all loved it. They were all like, "Oh, dude, this is a blast!" And you know, of course, and again, I'm not like going like, you know, you've got to like it. You don't, but it's just funny the scathing, how they'll attack everything about you to take it down a notch and take you down a notch and to say you're awful and. You know, the things that they say, you're just like, good God. Like, I'm just trying to make people laugh, dude. You know, 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is there anyone in your position or like Adam's position, like creators, people that have power in the business that have to be aware of themselves? Does everyone look at the reviews or are there truly some people that are like, I make it and I don't look? Um, I don't know. I don't, uh, you know, I'm sure there is. But I people mean, for, the, you for know? the most part, I, I just stopped looking at reviews at a certain point. I Did was you? Just, yeah, I was just like, there's no point, you know, because you're not, you're just not going to appeal to everybody. And, you know, with critics, you know, a lot of them look at like, you know, is you know, it's cinematic. I mean, comedy is so subjective. It's probably the most subjective thing on the planet because somebody can make you laugh and somebody can be like, this guy's not funny at all. Right. You know, so it's really hard to review a comedy. I mean, if you, if you want to review it technically and how the film looks or whatever, I guess you can. But for the most part, you know, it, it's just, it's completely subjective. I mean, I, I would go and read the reviews of movies I loved. And I would read the reviews of like Dumb and Dumber and Step Brothers and stuff like that. And I'm like, all those, in my opinion, should get 100% on Rotten Tomatoes because I love those movies. They're hilarious. Old school and stuff like that. Yeah, the best. So, you know, it's just funny to re- read those reviews and you're like, dude, you're dissecting like what what this movie is. It's like you either laugh or you don't. What's the protocol? So tell me your experience. Like, so you do Bucky and it doesn't quite connect with the critics do people leave you alone do they call you right away and say how you doing like what's the protocol when when something's not quite connecting um you know i th- i think so i don't remember completely but i remember yeah people were like oh sorry about that 
And I was like, yeah, you know, what am I going to do? It's, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's hard to know what to do in that when you're the, like the friend or like, how do you just. Yeah. Especially when your name is, I mean, it's me on the poster uh... and Nick Swartzen, you know, <laughs> so it, it is your, it is like, oh God. But I learned with grandma's boy, like I love that movie and just stood by it. The same thing with Bucky. I was like, I love this. I love this movie. So you know, that's all you can do at the end of the day is go, all right, well, I made something that I'm proud of and Definitely. I stand behind. So you can't live or die by criticism. You know, you have to have a thick skin and just go, I'm going to keep creating and keep doing what I'm doing. It's hard. It, it's hard to see it when it's you. And I like, I love Grandma's Boy. I auditioned for Grandma's Boy. I know. Boy. I remember that. Do you, were you in the audition? Yeah, I was a full producer and part of that. Re well, I you wrote you were, it and yeah. you produced, but I, I was don't, one of the writers and producers. Yeah, I remember Alan being in the audition, but I feel like you know I was seventeen, so I don't even know. You were in the mix for it. Thank you. Yeah, no, you were. I, I remember that. I remember that means a lot. I remember a handful of people that were in the mix for it. I, but I like those specific things where. You, you know, suffer a loss in our business, but you are talented and you're a good dude and you know people like to work with you. Yeah. It's like, and I've had this said to me where I've had like a show get canceled or whatever, where people have been like, don't worry, it'll be fine. Yeah. It's just giving, you know, might be a year, might be three. But like, and I've just, I just got this new show for Disney Plus and it came at the end of what was like a three year contemplate all the choices I ever made in life drought right. of work. And yet all the people I loved and respect were just like, just wait, like your career up until this point hasn't been a fluke. And you know, you took a knock and you yeah. got to recover and go away for a minute, but then you'll come back. Cause people like working with you and you're still good. Yeah, completely. And that's another thing too. We both been down that road where if you do get a show canceled, if you have a movie bomb, if you, if you go through those highs and lows, it it is really really hard because it will push you and it will you'll you'll question so many things. Yeah. And the only thing you can really do is just believe in yourself and be just a good person, you know what I mean? Treat people with respect and just go forward. And that's the great thing about Hollywood and that's the tricky thing is I always tell people that struggle, I'm like, look, your life can change at any second. Right. And that's a dice roll that you make jumping into this business is you really have to have thick skin and and really be, you know, it'll test you. But at the end of the day, you never know what audition's going to come in, what what's what's going to happen, who you're going to meet. But all all you can do is focus on yourself and being a good person, and just you know, it's really basic humanity. It's, you know, I don't know. So when you, I was listening to you on Theo's podcast, and you were talking about how you were kind of a, a smaller kid growing up, and that's where you first started developing your ability with comedy, because you would kind of use it as a defense mechanism, which is not new news when it comes to the comedian type. Right. Right. Is that is that true? Yeah. No, I was kind of the I was kind of the runt of uh, of the litter, and uh, you had a brother locking you in lockers and small spaces. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I went to a pretty like hardcore school where it was there were a lot of tough, really tough kids, but I was just always goofy. I always was just silly and it was in my nature too, but it also kind of disarmed people where nobody really messed with me. They would always just kind of they would always just laugh and they always wanted me around. I was just I was just silly. Family funny? 
Yeah, they are. They are funny. They have a really good sense of humor. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, it, it was always something that 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 helped me throughout life. Just having a a positive, just funny outlook on everything. And it was. I always equate this too as um, uh, I I always said it was kind of like a superpower when I was younger because you know I I was I would make jokes about people and I make jokes about teachers and everything and my brothers and sisters and stuff. And sometimes when you're a kid, you don't understand the power of like a joke. Mm. So I would just say something like fucking horrible about my sister. (laughs) And then she'd be like, Oh my God. And start crying. And I'm like, Oh God. And I didn't realize, (laughs) you know, like, you know, when you slam somebody at that age, you can, you know, hurt their feelings. So the older you get, you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I've got to use my power wisely. I can't just, go ripping on everybody all the time have you like that that little fuck face at the ivy league school who said uh your diarrhea joke was what did he say he goes oh it's so stupid have you ever gone off on a heckler or someone you've heard in the audience i mean not really i got booed off stage once in new york (laughs) no why when i was first starting because i wasn't it was i moved from minnesota to new york and so minnesota was very Midwest, very nice, mm. very, you know, even if you weren't great on stage, they would be like, all right, well, you know, he's trying. And, then, you know, it was, it was really hard to like bomb. <laughs> and then when I moved to New York, it was a different world. It was like, okay, like if you're not making them laugh fucking real quick, you're going to know it. Yeah, you're done. So, yeah, there was, uh, and I was really clean and I was going up, you know, when you're starting out, you have to go on at any time they give you. And I was up at like midnight, dude. So it was, it was a late crowd, and they were just not having it. And they were like, "Boo!" <laughs> and I was like talking about my cat. I'm like, "Cats are weird, right?" Uh, and they were just like, "No, I don't give a fuck about your cat, bro." We're Gotham, the cellar. It was Caroline's. a defunct comedy club now. Catch in the no uh, Boston Comedy Club in oh, the West sure. Village. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. And uh, booed off stage, and I was like, "Sorry, I'm." Sorry, and I just left the stage, and I was <laughs> shell shocked. I didn't, I didn't go on stage, and this is, I was going up every night if I could, and I didn't go on for like two weeks. It was horrific, how how horrible that made me feel. It, it was everything in my power to get back on stage. How much does it impact you now if you don't, if you have a set that doesn't go quite right? I mean, I've done it twenty five years. I've done, you know, my shows are my fans. I have an awesome fan base, and they're they're so great. So. You know, if something doesn't work, I'm just, you know, I, I don't really care. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I know what my my fans like and I know what is going to work at this point, you know. So it doesn't really phase me. But if I, you know, I uh, sometimes some stuff won't go like I wanted to go. Some jokes, I'm like, God damn it. But I'll, I'll just kind of slough it off and be like, oh, whatever. It's interesting because I I have started touring colleges doing like, 30 minutes of stand up and like a 30 minute Q and a. Oh, wow. That's mo- cool. And basically it's like, I'm going to a winning crowd cause they want to see me. Right. I have stories that I know work about my career and projects that they like and Drake and Josh and whatnot. Yeah. So, so I kind of, I, I know like that I'm in a very specific position that I couldn't walk up at, up at the comedy store on a Tuesday night, <laughs> Yeah. but I can like make these kids, uh, kids laugh. And yet, I'm starting to see after doing it now like 30 or 40 times the specifics of the environment and you used to hear comedians talk about like they're yes you should be able to be great anywhere 
but there are outside circumstances that influence this. Like if I'm in a proper auditorium that's dark with a good sound and a camera, so like I'm illuminated on a screen behind me so people can see what I'm doing. Yeah. That is almost always much better than if I'm in like a large ballroom that's completely flat lighting, no stage. And I'm just walking around like I'm giving a keynote at fucking IBM. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, completely. It's a different... It's so much about the environment, you know? I mean, when you're starting out, you've got to get on stage as much as you can. And like you said, too, I mean, I go up... And any comedian goes up with a skeleton of a, an outline of what they're going to say and stuff that you know works and stuff like that. You don't throw yourself out in a situation like that where you're just completely free-falling. You know, you know what you're going to say, and then you can add to it or riff on what you what you're already talking about whatever you want what whatever's going on but you know when you're starting out you're subjected to just you have to get on stage and that's when it's really tough i mean especially in los angeles where i would go with my friends who were coming up and they would do open mics and there'd be like three people there and i would hear other comics go well any stage time is good, good stage time stage time and i'm like yeah but i don't really agree with that <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean because my friends would go into like a horrible depression afterwards and I'm like, yeah, I go, it's, I go, not everything, not all stage time is amazing. You know, I mean, you, if you grow off it, sure. But I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it's not that great. I, is, am I wrong to think that great comedy comes from cold weather? No, I mean, I've heard that theory before. Really? Yeah. You're from Minnesota, Sandler, New Hampshire. Fucking Spades from Arizona. Eh, he's only okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying you're right. Yeah, okay, cool. No, uh, yeah, I, I've heard that before. Um, what do you think it is? I mean, I feel like bad weather makes people funnier. Well, it, it, I feel like it forces you to really go inside of yourself. Yeah. Because it's so miserable outside. So it does make you kind of think a little bit because, you, you know, you're not just running around in the sun and you're like, hey, everything's amazing. So it does make you go like, ugh, what is going on in my brain? And then you're just, you know, rainy or snowy or yeah. whatever it's like outside. So, but yeah, there's probably a probably a method to that or method to that madness. Lighten up fucking just the worst conditions ever. I mean, I'm sure there were like some hilarious people in the lunch line at like the filming of 8 Mile. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Like, um. I was going to ask you, and I'd be remiss if I didn't because he's one of my favorites ever. What was Mitch Hedberg like? Oh, Mitch was great. Yeah, and you guys were boys, right? Yeah, like, he was, he he came was a buddy together. of mine. Yeah, I. Uh, he started before me, but he was from St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm from. Really? And Mitch and I became, yeah, we, yeah, we were good friends. He was, he was a sweetheart. And it's funny because that diarrhea joke I told about going to the doctor and feeding him diarrhea, I gave that to Mitch. And we were backstage at the comedy club in Minneapolis. So I'm like, hey, man, do you, I wrote a joke. Do you want it? And he goes, what is it? And I get, told him the joke. And he goes, no, nah, man, you keep it. <laughs> and I couldn't tell if it was like, no, nah, I'm not fucking doing that joke. Or if he was just being like, no, nah, man, you keep it. Yeah. Because I don't think he really took jokes from people. I mean, I, I mean, meaning that I don't think, you know, somebody wrote him a joke. I don't think he, he ever did it. I think he was somebody that, you know, I'm like that too. I just like to do my own from my own brain, you know. Yeah. But uh yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that. No, man, you you can give it. <laughs> was he because it seemed like his persona, it much like when you see someone else great like a Hunter S Thompson, right? Where 
their their work is one thing you become obsessed with and then their persona you become obsessed with like was he the was he that off stage that like yeah man like this shirt is dry clean only which means it's dirty (laughs) like he was somebody that how he was on stage was not too dissimilar to how he was off stage really really shy and um really sweet really he was such a good dude i mean you know he he would be a little bit more open up you know what i mean when he was off stage but you know he was somebody that liked to be around people that he trusted and knew you know i mean but uh you know he uh he was really unique and he was one of the guys too and i've only met a handful of people like that in my life i'll never forget the first time i saw him on stage and it was in St. Paul, Minnesota at a place called the Comedy Gallery. It doesn't exist anymore. But he went on stage, packed house, and he went up and he told like a one-liner. And it got a laugh. And then he would wait like 20 or 30 seconds. And he would tell another one. And it would get a laugh. And he would wait. And to me, starting out, one of my biggest fears, and what a lot of people's fears are when they start out doing stand-up, is silence. Sure. If it's just dead quiet. So I was always afraid of that. So I was always kind of really hyper when I first started. And I remember seeing Mitch, and I'll, I'll just never forget how he, over the years, he, he would just let the audience come to him. He never forced anything else. He never tried to be something he wasn't. He just stuck by what he did, and that's what he did. And, I, you know, Zach Galifianakis was like that when we were coming up in New York. And... uh they just did what they did. And it was like, if the audience wasn't on board, they were like, all right, well, catch up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that kind of like, this is what I'm going to do. And then, you know, their voices got found. And then people are like, oh, this guy's amazing. It's like, yeah. I mean, once people got like, and I heard Stephen Wright was like that. Back in the heyday of stand-up back in Boston, he would uh, go on stage and the audience was rowdy and loud and drunk. And he would just talk his jokes, and then people would be like, shh, like, and they would hear it and be like, oh, that's funny. And that finally the whole room would get quiet because they wanted to hear what he was saying. So he just was like, I'm going to do this. So you guys, you know, if you want in on it, shut the, you know, shut the fuck up type of, you know, thing. And I, I always thought that was really amazing to watch, watch somebody do that. It's just, it's amazing to hear because when you hear a guy like Mitch, you assume that like everything is perfectly written and that, you know, he's delivering these perfectly worded sort of set up punchlines that he's worked on. And then in his albums, you'll hear him improvise a bit like the, the Phil bit. Do you, do you remember that from his, his album where, uh, some guy screams out, uh, he's got a pipe up on stage cause he wants to be able to smoke. Mm-hmm. And so he's got a pipe up on stage because it's theatrical. And he's like, uh, you know, a pipe is the joke. Like, uh, a, if if I'm smoking this pipe, y'all better be laughing because it's like giving me a moment. But basically what happens is he's got the pipe and some guy screams out like, I got some for that. or I got something to put in that pipe. And he's like, man, you like to fill shit. He's like, what's your name? And he's like, Phil. He's like, Phil. He's like, that's too good. <laughs> and he's like, that's a, yeah, that's hilarious. And he starts improvising within his, but in a Hedbergian way. And right. You're like, what, like, where, how, how is this so just on? I mean, I, I can't explain somebody's, how their brain works, you know, but if you're in a groove 
and you're of the right mindset, you can just go with anything. You know, I mean, that's how yeah. Mitch's brain worked too. I love that. That's <laughs> so funny. That how you know he he could just run with something like that because I mean that is perfect. His name was Phil, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, that's that's great. But yeah, I mean, sometimes the improvisation and people yelling stuff out that happens all the time, and you just your brain and, and it's almost. Yeah, I, I was talking about this with somebody the other day. It's they were like, "How do you have such quick?" Like if you're in a conversation, comebacks and stuff like that, and your brain is just trained like anything. When you grow up in the comedy world, surrounded by comedians, you're always thinking about comedy or just how your perception is and how you look at things. Your your mind is just trained and conditioned that way, just like anybody does anything. When you live it and it's your constant life, that's you know it, it becomes subconscious. And yet, and I'll hear Delia or like Brian Callen talk about a silly goose time and how they just want to be silly goose and just laugh and bits, bits on bits on bits. And I, and there are times in which I want to be like, aren't you fucking exhausted? I remember I saw David Blaine at dinner once and he was doing card tricks and I wanted to say, Dave, what are you running from? Like, right. <laughs> I just, but not necessarily in that way. But I also like, does it ever get exhausting where you're like, no more bits? Can we just talk? It depends upon who you're with. I mean, if you're with a, a certain group of people that you just click with, yeah, then it's just game on. It's such a blast. I did Fighter and the Kid with Theo and Callan and Brendan Schaub, and we just bum rushed it and just showed up. And we just, it was just one of those situations where it was like, I was like, nothing serious is going to get done on this thing, and w- which was fine. It was great, but I mean, something like this where it's like, it's nice, it's nice just to talk. Like, I don't, I, I don't like to be on, and people always think that you are. So I've met so many people that have met me out where they're like, hey, man, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, you just seem like mellow. And I'm like, yeah, I'm mellow a lot, you I'm know? Myself. Yeah, but it does kind of confuse people sometimes, especially if I'm not drinking. Then people are like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I just, I just like to sit sometimes. Ah, uh, So d- does it ever stop... I imagine as a comedian, the worst thing is, tell me a joke. You're a comedian, tell me a joke. Does that stop once you become famous? Um, Yeah, for the most part. Good. Yeah, it is pretty horrifying. And I would, but the great thing about it is when I was starting out before I was famous, um, I would get pulled over by cops for whatever bullshit. Um, And when I first moved out to LA, I had an out-of-state car with out-of-state plates and a broken headlight. Uh, the, so yeah, I was getting dealer. I was getting pulled out pulled over a lot, and my go to immediately, no matter what time of day it was, they'd be like, "All right, what are you doing? License registration?" I'm like, "Hey, I'm really sorry. I just moved to town. I'm a stand up comedian, and I have a show tonight." And they it would immediately they'd be like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Oh, really? You're a comedian?" I'm like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Oh, well, t- uh, tell me a joke." And I would always have a couple jokes <laughs> to tell them. And they'd be like, all right, yeah, all right, well, good luck, man. And they would just let me go. Cop-related jokes? Like, what's the deal with donuts? No, no. Okay, like- no, they were like really broad jokes. One of them was um, um, a blonde walks into a library, and she's like, can I get two cheeseburgers? And they'd be like, this is a library. And she's like, sorry, can I get two cheeseburgers <laughs> and it's just a simple joke but they would always laugh and then another one was a little longer was uh this is so dumb oh and i just did what i said i shouldn't do please it's just funny um 
a guy with a wooden eye uh, wants to go out uh, to a dance club, but he's self-conscious about his wooden eye. So he goes out, and he's sitting there by the dance floor, and he's like, ugh, I should dance. And he sees a girl, and uh, she's a little overweight. She's sitting alone, and he's like, I'm going to go ask her. I'm going to go ask her to dance. And you can tell she's a little self-conscious, too. And he walks up, gets the courage, walks over, and he goes, hey, man, would you like to dance? And she's like, would I? And he's like, fat ass. Because <laughs> he, he had a wooden eye. And she goes, would I? And she was all excited. And then he got self-conscious. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> but it would get a lack house. We'd be like, all right, all right. I don't know if you'll appreciate this because you're not in the tribe, but do you want to hear my new favorite Jewish joke? Yes. Uh, it's my favorite Jewish joke. A Christian business owner runs into another Christian business owner mm -hmm. and says, how's business? And the Christian business owner replies, great. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I hope no one else gets it. Just us. Um, there's a Jewish comedian I saw on Instagram that was really funny. I don't want to paraphrase his joke. Um, his name is like Renan Hirschberg. What and, a name. Uh, yeah. He's from New York and he had a joke. Uh, it was about God creating light. And uh, oh, I, oh, I don't want to paraphrase his joke. I'm going to. Forgive me. Um, but he said how like uh, at the opening of the Bible and he created light and it was good. Yes, that's how you know God is Jewish because he's like, yeah, I created light. You know, it was good. <laughs> he wasn't like it was great. He was like, yeah, it was good, not great. You know, I'm butchering his joke. Forgive me, but it was something like that. It was pretty funny. That's good. Um, so you're sober now. Yeah, five months. I, I quit drinking. And I would go through periods where I would drink. And that's another thing with comedy and just, you know, well, it's with anything. But, you know, for me, it was just, you know, it was just such a break, you know, drinking. And especially when, you know, if you only work an, an hour a night or then you have time off from filming, you know, it was just great drinking. But after a while and after the older you get, you're just like, all right, you just can't like just drink all the time. So I just I'm taking a, a long break right now. Sabbatical. Yeah, just developing a new TV show and new stand-up hour and well, you almost stuff like that. you almost died from it. No. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I I <laughs> it took the entire bad. yeah I took the entire summer off, and I was like, you know what? I was just kind of tired of it because I had pitched another TV show last spring and finished a movie, and the TV show didn't go. And nobody got it. And that's another frustrating part of this business is that, you know, when people don't see you working for it, they're like, oh, how come you're not working? And it's like, oh, no, I am. I write all the time and I pitch shows and you pitch stuff and people don't get it. And networks are like, we don't get it. And it's so frustrating. And, you know, it's just a big picture of rejection nonstop and something you believe in. I'm like, yeah, but we've got this great director and this, this idea is great. And they're like, yeah, I don't get it. And so finally, last summer, I was like, fuck this. Yeah. I'm not going to shoot this summer. I'm going to go to baseball games. I'm going to hang out with my friends. I'm just going to drink. I'm going to drink every day. Great. And it was great. And it was awesome. And I had a blast. And it was just no responsibility. I would do shows here and there. And they were fine. And, uh, you know, it got compounded with a couple. Uh, a friend, Brody Stevens, killed himself last February. But then that got compounded with another friend of mine who had killed himself. And that brought up 
those two things hit me like a tornado in the middle of drinking. Then I had another death in my family, and it was just. And when you're at that point of you've been drinking a lot over a course of time, and then those two things really kind of punch you, and and then that then another that other death, and it, then it was just it became. Game I was on, yeah, I just became I was on another planet, and I just wasn't all there, and I just drank for a different reason, and th- then it got to the to the point where I dr- I was drinking so much that my system crashed when I was in Minnesota, and I got on an airplane, I was vomiting nonstop, landed in Denver, and then I had to go to a, an, the emergency room, and I was in the ER for three weeks because you had sepsis in your blood. I had. Altitude sickness, alcohol poisoning, pancreatitis, um, a kind of blood bacteria that they didn't know what it was. I had pneumonia. I had all these things hit my system at once. And you I, need to add on like an eczema, unrelated. <laughs> but Yes, and diarrhea. And, uh, and I had an ice cream headache. I just eat an ice cream. <laughs> but uh, no, Did all these check? things compounded me at once and I almost died. I had a 10% chance of living. Were they? Were you in a like a a version of a, like a medically induced sedation? Like no, I no, it wasn't a coma type thing. But I was, it was kind of a sedation where I was out. I, I was definitely spent a, a handful of days just completely gonzo. Yeah, on tubes and the whole washing your blood, the whole nine. Yeah, it was gnarly. Then I slowly. Un- Bounce back, but I thought like, oh, I'll get out of the hospital, I'll be fine. But no, it, it took a while, and I had to go through extensive. Um, I did a lot of uh, uh, holistic stuff with my doctor, and just flushing out of my organs and acupuncture and cupping and stuff like that to just draw toxins out because it was I had completely, I mean, nuked my system. It was crazy, and I'd never experienced. I've been on like IVs before, like. Oh, I'm hungover. I'm, you know, ugh, and stuff like that. But this was like another level. If I had not flown to Denver, it would have been better. Sure. If I just stayed in Minneapolis. But the altitude and then getting on a plane, and then I still tried to drink through it, even though I was throwing up everything. I threw up into my carry on in my seat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like bad. And um, what 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 was your carry on made of? Like, who makes your carry on? Was it like Gucci backpack? Or no, it was just like a backpack. Luggage? And I didn't. I was. This is how Minnesotan and polite I am. I didn't want to bother the guy next to me because I was on the window seat. So I was like, I'll just slide over here and just try to vomit sideways into my backpack. What the was, guy clearly noticed. <laughs> he was on his laptop watching a movie. What was in there? My fucking clothes. <laughs> so then I get to the no. hospital. I had to cancel my shows. They're rescheduled. And uh, yeah, my sister was like, she flew in and went through my bag. She's like, what is this substance? <laughs> oh, and I'm like, no. oh, it's uh, bile vomit from my body. She was like, good God. You couldn't have given her a heads up before she opened up your I transport? I forgot about it. I was, like, <laughs> I was all tubed up. I was on YouTube. Oh, literally. That is so... So when you talk about like you're drinking, and, and I've heard you on a couple pods where you always say like, yes, I drank in excess, but it was always a great time. For the most part, it was always, yeah, it was great. I mean, there were times, though, where I would, it was clearly drinking to deal with shit. But is there, like, just, can it be, I, I wonder, right? Because, like, the one thing I know in, you know, from being sober for this long is that, like, people that take a break from drinking, who, like, take six months off or, like, 
it usually means that, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're alcoholic. It just means that they have a unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Right. Right. And like, it can that be, can both be true? Can you be like, I know it's kind of unhealthy, but also I have a great time. Yeah, completely. And that's why people are like, you're alcoholic. And I was like, well, I mean, I am and I'm not because, you know, when I, usually when I would drink, I would just love doing it. And I would, you know, I just keep doing it. And, you know, if I wanted to stop, I would just stop. So I have zero problems going to bars. I still go to bars almost every day and hang out with my friends. And sure. I have no problems not doing it. I would just drink to excess and I would have a blast. And like, I always love the stories for the next day. They're like, dude, you fucking wiped out that bush. And then, like, <laughs> you you know, like all this shit where, you know, you'd be like, yeah, you urinated in the sink. And then you, <laughs> you, you know, we had to bring you up to your hotel room in a luggage rack. And it was just like, uh, you know, it was funnier the younger you are, but then when you're in your 40s, it's like, all right, this is ridiculous. But um, yeah, I, I never had panic moments where, and I, I knew people like that, where they like couldn't even look at a bar, couldn't yeah. even see an empty bottle, couldn't do that stuff. So, it, you know, it affects everybody differently. But, you know, I, I would just get into patterns, and a lot of it was by choice. I was like, I oh, know, I'm going to drink. I'm going to get fucking hammered. It, it wasn't like, whoa, what's happening? I'm like... Oh no! I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna go the distance. I was I, I was listening to you on Sant- Santino's pod, and this this I'm upset. I'm giving so many Andrew Santino free endorsements, but he does have a good podcast. Um, and his was the first I did outside of the hospital. Oh wow! So that was why it was fresh. That, that, yeah, that was why it was so fresh on that topic. Is that was literally like two weeks out of the hospital, maybe three. And you sort of said. During the time in which you're getting it on, you kind of gave a, um, a sort of a play-by-play of like a 24-hour period of drinking for you during that time. Right. And it seems to start at 6 a.m. and end at last call. And I'm not sure when you sleep. I'll tell you. Can I pee really quick? Please. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful building. Yeah, it's cool, right? Um, okay, yeah. So give My me the drinking regimen. If I was really on one, I would, and this is the thing is, and this is really dangerous when you're drinking, is that um, you start to drink just to feel normal. Right. So if I was out. on, if I went on like a weekend of like getting drunk and then I would need a cocktail just to be like, all right, just to get your nerves off. And then you get to a point where it was, I would need four cocktails just to feel normal and what was your go-to cocktail i've I've gone through every kind of liquor phase but i i would end with vodka so i would try to be healthier and i would drink like vodka water with a lime clean yeah just clean and uh but yeah it was it got to the point where i would get up at 5 a.m because i couldn't sleep and then i would go to the bar at 6 a.m and i would drink until like 11 then i would go to another bar and then I would drink until like three and then I would go and pass out and then I would wake up at like seven or eight and then I would go back out until last call. And I was drinking a bottle, bottle and a half a day of uh, vodka. For how long? I mean, could this go two months? I could straight? go months at a time. But um, I, it's, uh, and maybe it's just because I'm projecting. Cause I know for me, when I, I used to drink and use, it was, it was just bad news bears quick. I was not good at 
you know, you always hear like Winston Churchill drink like a fifth of fucking whiskey yeah, <laughs> a day. Amazing. And it's like, I, I was not Winston Churchill. I was child actor Josh Peck. And, <laughs> and that's, I just seemed to nosedive. I couldn't manage. So were you able to keep that up and nothing was falling through the cracks? Well, first of all, Let's not ignore the fact that you are the Winston Churchill of child actors. Thank you so much. <laughs> I used to think it was Shia LaBeouf, but I agree. It's me. Nope. Winston Churchill. God bless you. Yes. Keep buggering on. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, what was the question? Like, were you, uh, while you're in the middle of this run, are things not falling through the cracks? Are you, are you really maintaining? I mean, yes and no. I mean, for the most part, I would never drink when I filmed. Sometimes I did, but it was pretty rare if I had a weekend off. But for the most part, I didn't drink when I would film. And other actors would be like, what? It's Friday. Let's have drinks. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. Mm. I would drink up until filming sometimes. I mean, there's movies I've gone into, like, definitely not 100% together. And I probably look like shit, some of them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the most part, you know, I if I had to focus, I would really focus. But, you know, if I, you know, my shows, sometimes I would have to cancel shows. And like last summer, I had to cancel shows twice because um, uh, when, when my friends committed suicide, uh, I, I was just I couldn't go on stage. I was just like, I can't do it. So I had to cancel shows. And then when I was in the hospital, I had to cancel shows again. But um, for the most part, I, w I, w I would get my shit together. You know, I mean, I could my tolerance. I could drink a lot and still maintain. I mean, I would do huge tours and I would drink half halfway through half of them you know it was a blast i would go out you know and still do my shit i mean i knew what i was doing what about like the the smaller shit like were people like were you texting everyone back when you were sort of three sheets to the wind um yes and no i mean were you on top of your emails yes and no i mean if i if i wanted to check out i mean sometimes and I would do it regardless. Sometimes I just wanted to check out. Yeah. You know, a lot of it was like, I just didn't, you know, I remember when I was on, when I was on the road, I lost my phone. And I don't know if anybody out there listening has experienced this, but I broke my phone and I was like, oh, fuck, I don't have a phone. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to hang out in like Northern California. And I would have cocktails and drink during the day and go to lunch. And, and it was really nice not having my phone. And I, I went on social media and DM'd like my sister and um, emailed my manager. And I was like, hey, my phone's broken. And I was just off the grid and it was great. And then all of a sudden it sent everybody into a panic. And then like all of a sudden, you know, it spiraled into my, my opening act. My buddy Josh was getting, he was getting panicked emails and panicked this and panicked that. I'm like, what's like, what is he doing? Is he drinking a lot? Is it blah, blah, blah. And it, uh, he's like, well, no, he's fine. He's just, he doesn't want to get a phone right away. He, sure. doesn't, he doesn't need a phone right I mean, I didn't need a phone right away. I mean, I could still check my emails on my laptop. And, you know, it's, and it, that was kind of interesting to me is that if you don't have a phone, you're not human anymore or you're not alive, you know, which is a valid point if somebody's on suicide watch or something like where it's, you're like, oh my God. But, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, and anytime I didn't have my phone for a couple of days, it was great. But it would send people into an immediate like, oh, my God, he's fucking dead. It's so terrifying. And I was, I, I was still in touch with people. I'm like, hey, I'm on my email. I'm, I'm on social media. 
you know, you can DM me and I can access that through a computer. But it was just nice not having to like just constant texts and bullshit. And, you know, it's really great. And I actually recommend people doing that. Like, you know, I would go to Hawaii a lot. I go to Hawaii all the time. I love it. And my buddies would always have their phones and I would leave it back at the hotel. And I'm like, why don't you just not bring your phone out? Yeah. And just skip a day. Unless you have something like really imperative, obviously. But if you can have that liberty of just, just, you know, not have your phone for a minute. And it's really great. Just be in the water, be in the ocean, just go about your day or just, you know, just take a break, you know, and get, go outside and just not just live or die by a fucking phone. It's really weird. And for the younger people listening, and I'm sure you've heard this before, forgive me, but it is surreal to, to think of a world. And I grew up in a world where there, there were no phones, where you didn't have that. And it, it, it is really bizarre. And you do feel like, oh, like, I remember, I hate being that guy, but it's just really honest. It is pretty surreal to see the giant leap that everything's taken with phones and, you know, obviously social media and stuff like that, but just your phone. It's crazy. I used to have that sort of older guy issue with convenience culture. And I was like, fuck Postmates, fuck the Starbucks app where you can literally put your order in and just walk in. It's pre-made. You don't have to talk to anyone. I was like, Uber, all these things just make it way too convenient so that you don't have to, you know, kids nowadays don't want their license because they're like, oh, my mom will drive me or I'll Uber. Right. And for me, that was such a rite of passage. It was such a sign of freedom. And then I got Postmates. And I got the Starbucks app. I'm like, this is fucking amazing. Yeah. I don't want to talk to a barista. Too good for that. Just give me my egg white frittata and my Arnold Palmer heavy tea. I'm too good for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I gave my car up four years ago. I don't own a car. Okay. I, I heard you say that. And, and here's my question. Because I have a buddy who did that, right? And he mm-hmm. was like, I got a DUI. And so I no longer wanted to drink and drive. So I stopped driving. Did you give it up because it was like it was getting in the way of your drinking? No, I was I drank and drove at a young age, which is so horrible. And honestly, anybody out there, do not drink and drive. It really is the worst thing you can do. Even if you think you're fine, it's just don't roll the dice on that. And I never got a DUI, but no, for me it was just I'm really environmental, mm-hmm. and so I just I want to do it just for the environment. I live in a neighborhood where I can walk anywhere. I moved from New York where you walked everywhere. Right. And uh, so I just liked walking and I didn't like driving because driving in LA, uh, it was just so awful. And it was such another stress additive where after I quit driving, I didn't realize how much more of a peace of mind I had. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'll just take an Uber or a Lyft and, you know, it's it's a couple bucks, obviously, but in the big picture of car payments and insurance and everything, it took, it evens out. And, you know, again, I'm lucky enough to live in a part of town and in, in, in a city where I can do a lot of walking. Oh, yeah. So it's just free exercise. Too. No, this is ideal. And yeah, I'm not like Ubering from my living room to my bathroom or anything where it's like <laughs> the degree of lazy. That'll be the next step is like just Uber uber people (laughs) where they're just like i'm not getting off this fucking couch just carry me to the toilet do you uh do you you miss drinking i mean i do and i don't i've thought about it i'm like i might have a drink but it's one of those things where 
you know, once I always started, I mean, I could maybe have two and call it, but you know, when I, when I drank, I like to just sign up for the experience of like, you know, I'm going to get <laughs> fucking drunk. And I, I just don't really miss it because I did it. You know, I did sure. it. There's nothing I haven't done where, you know, I've been drunk in every city. I've been drunk in every scenario. I partied in Vegas. I party, you know, I've done all that stuff. So You've been there's drunk nothing... in Boise? Where? Drunk in Boise? I have not. When I was on tour in Boise, I wasn't drinking then. Drunk in Tuscaloosa? I've never been into Tuscaloosa. Montgomery, Alabama? Mobile, Alabama. Nice. Better. Yeah. Better. Great little town, by the way. Mobile's a nice city. Good alcohol? I'm... Yeah, it was great. Good drinking town. Solid. Yeah, I've been drunk in so many towns. It's been a blast. But, you know, I don't know if I'll be back. Who knows? But I, I there's not, there's no regrets. I'm not like, oh, I, w- I wish I had gotten hammered in Florida. <laughs> it's like, done that. I but, never got drunk in Sarasota. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, drinking, it's, everyone's different at the end of the day. It's all, it affects people differently. Different liquors affect people differently. You know, it's just, it's good. It's always good to, you know, know why you're drinking. Yeah. It's always good. If you want to cut loose for a voucher party, yeah. But if you're, you know, if you're in a really dark place, it can not be a great thing. I, but I do, I, I so identify with you because when I would drink, like people would say, hey, do you want to come over for a drink before, you know, dinner, before the movie? And I'd be like, for what? Like, I, I have no interest in a drink. Right. Like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Yeah. And having one just seems, uh, having one seems worse than having none. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I have a lot of friends that were of that mindset of like, oh, yeah, I'll just have a glass of wine. Ugh. For like, what? I can't even, I mean, maybe that'll be the next osmosis of, I don't even know. The evolution. Yeah. The evolution of. I think I just used that word for no reason. <laughs> My wife has half a margarita, and I hate it. I, I don't like when she drinks half a Diet Coke, but she'll drink half a margarita, and I'll be like, but if you drink the rest, it will double the effects. Yeah. <laughs> and then she'll be like... I've never not finished a drink. <laughs> oh, me either. Okay, so uh, last question before last question is, can you? I'm I'm fascinated by people like Sandler and whatnot and what it takes to have the level of you know, workload and, and I guess for lack of a better word, accomplishment that they have. Can you distill down like anything that you witnessed working with him so intimately for so long where you're like, Oh man, like that's one of your grit. Like that's one of your superpowers, Adam. Um, I'm amazed by him at all times that he, the the amount that he juggles and that he's juggled in terms of being such a great family man and overseeing a giant production company and everything on from TV shows and, you know, so many movies and developing so much stuff. I mean, he, he somehow is able to really passionately believe in everything too. When we, going back to Bucky Larson, we had a script and I remember me and him did like 10 rewrites on it. And I'd never, I'd written movies and, uh, and I'd never done anything like that. And he's like, no, 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 let's, let's go back over. Let's go back over. Let's go back. And he just was committed is- to just fine tuning and fine tuning it. You know, whatever you think of the end result, we loved it. Yeah. And what does that look like? So like you send him a pass and then he does his notes and sends We it had back? a pass and then, you know, he's like, oh, okay, do another pass. And then me and Alan Cover did another pass. 
And then I would, then I just sat at his house. Adam's like, come over. And we would just sit there and we would go over it scene by scene by scene by scene and comb over it and come over it and come over it. And then, you know, the thing with him uh, too, and one thing I like to do is we would, we would write up until the very last second. So when I would produce movies with him, you know, I would get the script for the day or the, they're called sides, which are the pages that you're shooting that day in my trailer. And I would go over them and I would punch those up and add stuff and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, so it was just constantly, it would never, ever stopped. There was never a point where it's like, huh, okay. It was from the very second. And that, you know, that includes improvising and throwing things out. And, you know, he, he just is a, a, a workhorse. He's anybody who thinks like, oh, you guys make it, you know, it looks so easy and fun. It must just be, you know, people were always like, oh, you guys must just be high and drunk the whole time. And it's like, no, it's work dude like we go to work and it's you're working the whole time are you do you ever have to distinguish a, a, a let's say you're writing something for sandler or you're there on the day and you're writing alts and and improvs and whatnot do you ever have to like make that decision of like oh this is funny to me but maybe this isn't adam's voice or to, or it's always like yeah completely really yeah that's the thing and that was a skill set that i learned and had quickly was being able to write for somebody's voice. Mm. So when I would, Adam would have me write jokes for him for talk shows when he would do Letterman, when he would do Tonight Show and stuff like that. I just learned what jokes were in Adam's voice, what the tone was and what the perspective was. I remember when I was, I was one of the writers on Benchwarmers and I remember David Spade called me and he was like, yeah, I just read the script. It's hilarious. He goes, I've never had somebody write in my voice like that. Like all these jokes are my exact delivery and tone and everything. And I was like, yeah, well, I've watched you for years. So I knew exactly what you can deliver and what, what your cadence and everything is. And he was like, Jesus Christ. And then, you know, I've worked with David forever, but yeah, I, I'm writing a TV show now and I'm writing with the two lead act for the two lead actors. And I just know their voices. I don't know if I can talk about it, but, um, you know the people involved, and uh, it's Ooh. just a pilot presentation that I'm shooting out of pocket. Oh, that's fun! Out of pocket, yeah. Good I was for just, you. I was tired of pitching, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna pay out of pocket for a 15 minute pilot presentation, and I got a director, amazing line producer, amazing director, and uh, two cast members with me that are fucking awesome. And they're not under contract or anything. They they're just doing it because it's you know they like it and they like and trust me. And, uh, yeah, so it, I'm just so excited to have that freedom and liberty. But, yeah, to write for somebody's voice is so great. Uh, it's such a gift. It's funny because I was interviewing our boy Rick Glassman. I love Rick. And I, I said something to that effect of, like, the thing about doing, you know, because I grew up on sitcoms. And the thing that I grew up, or uh, the thing that was challenging for me when I walked into that Stamos show was that it was a half-hour comedy, so there's no rehearsal. Right. right. You show up on the day and I think you, you know, you can attest that like there are sometimes things that I'm sure crushed in the writer's room, but for whatever reason on the day in my voice, it's not quite connecting. Right. And, and what Rick said to me, is like, yeah, but it's our job to make it work as the actors. And I'm like, you're so right, Rick. And yet there's a big part of me that feels like sometimes it's impossible. If it's not if it's not quite in your voice and there's some weird disconnect, you can't always make every joke 
hit. I agree. Yeah, there's certain... Uh, I've turned down a ton of stuff, and I, I still don't really like doing things where I'm not heavily creative on on the project. Right. Where I can... Usually, I'm, I'm hired because of that. Where they're like, oh, Swartzen will just do his thing. Yes. Like, he'll add whatever. He'll deliver it however, you know. But, um, yeah, I can't, I can't just be a just read a joke off a page like yeah yeah just read it you know what i mean i i just can't do that unless it's somebody that i really trust or something where you know i i, I don't know i i just i always want to be creatively involved it's so hard because i've had moments in which i've gotten shit for trying to rework something or adding or whatever and i, and I always want to say like listen i'm lazy like, my dream would be to just say this and go home and not worry about it. Right. Like, if I'm doing this, it's because it feels bad yeah. to me. And, like, I'm just doing my very best to at least try to make this funny to me and hopefully you. Yeah. And maybe I, I probably suck as a writer, but, like, I'm just giving it a try because we just tried it three times and it didn't quite <laughs> land. Yeah. And and they're like, yeah, but they didn't. the network didn't approve your shitty writing. And I'm like, okay, gotcha. It's hard. It's it's hard. Being it is really hard. Actor for hire at times. Yeah, I mean that's what like I, I would just pass on so many TV opportunities because I I just always when I was first starting out I'm like I don't want to get stuck on a sitcom just to be on a sitcom and then I'm at the mercy of just especially network network writing where it's very specific. It's not. It doesn't seem like a lot of room to just. Oh, riff this, or yeah, if you have any ideas, I mean, they'll probably say that. But the, at the end of the day, the showrunner is going to be married to whatever he wants, and the head writer is going to be like, "No, I love this joke," you know? Right? Or like that would be really tricky for me to ha to do something like that. I I interviewed a buddy of mine who's a showrunner, my buddy Sam Laybourne, and he said the problem is is that we love it, but we know as a writer that it took us six weeks to get all this shit approved. Right. And we like had to rewrite it six times and maybe completely throw out the outline and think of a new idea. So finally they've agreed to this and they're like, so we're terrified to bring it to them and they, them say, why did we just spend six weeks and you give us something different? Yeah. And, and then there's that other side too. And I wonder if you subscribe to this. He's like, and then also he's like, you have to be careful with bits. He's like, there's a fine line between this is great and we found something great on the day. And is this just funny because it's new? Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, completely. It's um, yeah, I mean, and also, you know, there's certain things too where it's like, also, does that fit the character? Yes. Or are you just getting a laugh to get a laugh? Does it fit the context of the scene? Is it driving Do, it forward? Yeah. Does it fit the big picture of what's going on? You know, and th yeah, that's another thing that you have to watch out for too is uh, I've heard a lot of comedy directors, old school comedy directors be like, yeah, we would have to cut a lot of stuff because it was funny, but it, it didn't ultimately fit in the big picture of what, who the character was and what, it, you know, a, you know, a good joke's a good joke, but you know, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Okay, last question. What are your um, one or two Nick Swartzen commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else? I would say... Hmm. I would say... I mean, just in general, I would say... I would say write. Always write. Even if you're a writer, even if you're not a writer, even if you're in the business, even if you're not in the business, to just write your thoughts, write your emotions, write anything. 
whatever you're dealing with, whatever, anything funny, maybe anything, anything you want to do, just write it down. Just sit there and just as a therapy exercise, um, in any mindset that you're in, if you're frustrated or anything, just write about it. Just sit down and just get it out and look at it. And you can reflect on it later. You can do whatever you want. But I really find, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, that there is a real catharsis to just putting your mind down and looking at it. Yeah. And just going, okay. You know, again, and it, whatever mindset you're in, if you know, if you just want to write something funny that you think is funny, just write it down or just write about your day or just something just to just spend time with yourself. And I guess that can segue into the second thing where, you know, to really focus on yourself, to really put in the work of, um, you know, a lot of people put so much pressure on, you know, I need a relationship. I need to be dating. I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that. But really at the end of the day to just, I mean, as somebody who's gone through all of it and tried to drink through it and trying to do this and trying to do that, to really just sit with yourself and deal with, you know, and it just sounds so corny, but like finding out who you are and just getting to know and be comfortable with who you are and yourself and dealing with your shit. And then everything else will kind of be, will gravitate towards that, mm. you know? And that's one thing where I'd like started eating better. That was really huge. I started cutting out like sugar and stuff like that and cutting down on stuff like that where I would just treat my body better. Even when I was drinking, I would still, I would eat, I would like eat vegan. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like even in the peak benders, I would still be like, oh yeah, no cheese on that, please. <laughs> or yeah, no, I, I don't want a soda. I'll take a tea or something like. Tea and vodka. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I would always just, you know, it's just good to, to really focus on yourself and make yourself the best that you can be. And then other things will, you know, gra like I said, gravitate towards that. Maybe if you go back to drinking kombucha, hard kombucha. I've done that. It seems rather. Go on a yoga bender. Yeah, something like that. Yoga bender. I like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah fucking Pilates. Uh, just get shit house at Pilates. Just get all high on my spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. Love you, bud. Love you, bro. Thank you. Good to see you. Dude. That was it. That was Nick Schwartz and good, right? Was that not great? No? Well, fuck you too then. I'm just kidding. Um, thank you guys for listening. I love you. I appreciate you. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye.